Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this show, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, March 6th. I'm Terry Aranga, here with my returning guest, Dr. Devin Houston. This is part two of the interview of January 31st. Dr. Devin Houston has been involved in several fields of research, including the mechanisms of how cells respond to environmental signals with work funded by the American Heart Association. He was an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology at the St. Louis University School of Medicine, and he was funded by the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Houston served as the manager of research and development at the National Enzyme Company, eventually becoming the founder of Houston Nutraceuticals, which many of our listeners think of as Houston Enzymes. Welcome back, Dr. Houston. Thank you, Terry. Glad to be back. We've been talking about personalized medicine and individualized nutrition. Let's jump right back in with why this is necessary. How can foods, drugs, or supplements not change a child's genes, but change the way a child's genes work. Well, yeah, it's a it's a new new field of study, um, often referred to as epigenetics. Um, it, it's it's rather complex, but I know in our previous discussion we talked about uh, folate folic acid metabolism, um, and just a. a Cursory examination of the existing medical literature will demonstrate that there are studies showing that, for example, low folate concentrations can increase colon cancer risk, um, but also overly abundant folate supplementation may increase the risk as well. Um, there are studies showing that, and we know that folate works in, in the area of one carbon transfer, uh, basically DNA methylation. Um, so, you know, um, while, while uh, a deficiency of folic acid can cause problems, if we go overboard in supplementing, um, there's other evidence that shows that high folic acid can dysregulate up to, you know, more than a thousand genes. Um, so, and this may have uh, an impact in, in such neurodevelopmental diseases such as autism. So I, you know, am not wanting to put the kibosh on it, but I just say let's be careful. 
and um, let's make sure we evaluate patients as individuals, um, just noting that, that everyone's genetics are different. And um, instead of treating everybody the same way, um, I think we need to take a, a closer look at, at the makeup, the genetic makeup of, of persons, and then adjust the, not only medications, but diet and, and dietary supplements as well. So we know that folate is very important, uh, and uh, things like folic acid, folinic acid, or what have you, whatever is appropriate for the person in whatever appropriate amount. But we also know that we can't use a throw the spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks approach. So I know when I was growing up, Dr. Houston, there would be news reports, and it was the the latest um, miracle, you know, cured du jour, but you didn't really know uh, how that applied to the particular biochemistry of any given person who might be taking it. So if they were touting something on the news, um, you needed to really do a little bit more digging as to whether it was appropriate for any respective individual. Let's, let's talk about this. We know that nutrients are, uh, or deficiencies of nutrients or how the body processes nutrients or it's its chemical state can contribute to so-called mental illnesses. Um, so does this make a difference as to whether the person is under-methylated or over-methylated? Is that going to make a difference as to what nutrients help that particular person with their so-called mental illness or diagnostic label? Well, it's it's possible, and I, and I think the thing we have to avoid is, is having tunnel vision, looking at their picture particular cause and effect relationship of anything uh, and applying, looking just at one aspect. Everything is, is related. Met, um, metabolic pathways in the, in the body um, interact. They cross over. So if we look at something like um, um, natural isothiocyanates, that's a big word for uh, a substance found in cruciferous vegetables, like broccoli and cauliflower and, and those things. And those foods are, are supposed to be good for you, and, and they are. But isothiocyanates are known to modify proteins. Um, they can uh, influence the expression of antioxidant genes, which is good. Um, they can also have a genotoxic potential as well. So uh, every, there's this yin and yang effect. Um, you can go look at dietary polyphenols. They also affect DNA methylation, and any time you you affect or 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 alter the the structure of something like DNA, um, you can get a silencing of an effect, or you can silence a gene, which would then cause that gene not to produce something that may be good or may be bad. So it's it's something we we have to look in a holistic uh, mindset that everything works together. The, the brain works uh, with the gut. The gut communicates with the brain. Uh, the immune system communicates with the gut um, as well as the peripheral nervous system. So um, I, I think this is something I've seen in the, in the autism community is we tend to get tunnel vision. We look at, we, we focus so much on one small area. It's like looking at a map of the United States and concentrating just on, on Des Moines, Iowa, uh, when you have this whole other 
land and property and, and country surrounding that needs to be taken to, into account as well. Mm, okay, good point. So we often hear that methylation is a good thing. It helps us detoxify. Um, but if you use something to increase methylation but you're already an overmethylated person, that would seem to not be an optimal situation. Right. And, and again, you're talking about a, a when you you're talking about DNA, uh, part of the genome. It's it's a huge, huge territory. And while we've mapped out the human genome, we're still not sure what parts of the genome do what. So DNA methylation is is basically a broad term. It, basically, it's where or what gets methylated within that DNA sequence. So depending on on where methylation is occurring, um, you're going to get bad results or good results. And that's what I think needs a, a huge Manhattan-like project attitude toward toward this whole um, field of study. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. So um, I don't believe that autism is a genetic epidemic because, for one thing, you can't have a genetic epidemic. But if the kids were deluged with environmental toxins that skewed their neurodevelopment, how do certain nutrients and supplements help them tolerate the toxins and even recover? Yeah, I agree with you, Terry. I don't think it's a, 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 a genetic epidemic at all. Um, otherwise, we would have seen it in in different um, times of, of of human history. So I I think it's definitely correlated with with a more toxic and and changed environment. Um, and again, I think we have to look at um, uh, what what particular supplement is being taken, what's um, part of the diet of, of a particular culture, and again, cause and effect. So I think it's very interesting that um, there's, there's new evidence coming out that, um, that certain over-the-counter drugs may, may be having an influence on, on um, um, expression of certain neurodevelopmental problems such as autism when you compare different countries where that drug is not available as it is here. So I think that's extremely interesting and gives, gives uh, much credence to, to our environment, which, and again, the environment is not just what we experience in the air and the water, but it's what we put in our mouths or what's exposed to our skins as well. So you wouldn't want to necessarily take a psychotropic drug and just throw it at a four-year-old whose brain is still developing because it might... Exactly, yes. And a lot of it's just common sense as, as well as, uh, uh, you know, trying to help. We often go overboard. Um, everything seems to work on a bell curve. So too little of a substance may, may not produce good results. Too much of a substance may also produce uh, negative results. So it's finding that area of efficacy, that area of the curve that produces the most optimal results. And again, that's going to vary um, from individual to individual, maybe not by much, but by enough to where I think it's a concern. Right. And we were talking about whether an individual is undermethylated or overmethylated. These, there are objective laboratory tests that are easy to get from um, an enlightened doctor who sees kids with autism. Is this not true? 
Yes, I, and I think they're becoming um, more available as well. Again, a quick look on the internet shows that there there are many labs that are that are gearing up to do this kind of testing. So I think uh, if we have more doctors aware of um, of the advantages of looking at at things like what genes are methylated in a person, what, um, what's the mom's uh, genetic methylation makeup look like, and I think. I think that would go a long way in providing the kind of personalized medicine that that we've been talking about. Okay, yeah, and um, I just as an aside, um, there was a conference this past weekend uh, called, for short, the MAPS Conference, Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs, and um, listeners will recognize a lot of the the doctors who are involved with that as having been involved with the former defeat autism now. Uh, network, which is now the ARI conferences, but that website is www.medmaps.org, and um, those are the kinds of doctors who will be more enlightened and willing to look at these objective laboratory tests that tell you more about what's really going on inside of your child um, and what could be appropriate for them. So, Dr. Houston, let's get back to talking about the gut. What influences the ability of the gut to process these nutrients that we've been mentioning? Well, um, again, you want a a optimal functioning gut. You want to make sure that uh, inflammation is not present. Inflammation is one of the worst things that can can occur in a gut, Um, and it's the precursor to so many um, intestinal problems, uh, celiac disease, um, colitis, um, IBS, and um, Crohn's disease, all, all involve you know, inflammatory damage um, to some extent. So you want to limit that. And inflammation is caused by, uh, by injury, either by infection or by the presence of something that should not be there. Um, so it, I, I look at the gut as, as trying to keep your, as a house, try to keep the house as clean as possible. So the gut is supposed to be processing food that has been um, processed by the stomach to a certain consistency and prepared for further chemical breakdown through the use of pancreatic enzymes uh, and such. So um, the gut becomes a, an organ of, uh, of chemical digestion, as, but it's also absorption as well. So as things become available and, and, and processed from, from the foods, um, they are then um, made available to be absorbed, um, hence the term bioavailability. So that's what we are looking for. We want to enhance the bioavailability of the foods we eat uh, to present to the body. Um, we want to also make sure that we are making the bacteria in our gut happy as well. We don't want to introduce things that, that will modify them too much or destroy them or eliminate them. So that's, that's the top priority is, is making sure that what goes in the gut gets processed. Um, if it's not absorbed, we want to make sure it gets eliminated and doesn't hang around, just laying around um, starting to ferment um, and being a food source for, for um, pathological bacteria or yeast. So uh, basically just cleaning house, making sure all the cobwebs and dust and um, 
things that are laying around are, are picked up and processed and either removed or, or, or absorbed. Okay. And with that, we will be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll be talking about the fascinating world of gut bugs. Thank you to our sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Devin Houston of Houston Enzymes, and that website is www.houston-enzymes.com. And before the break, we were talking about cleaning house. And no, we're not talking about whether you're going to be using Lemon Pledge or um, Ajax. We're talking about the fascinating world of the gut. And Dr. Houston, how do digestive enzymes um, help ward off these gut bugs that you were beginning to talk about that mess up gene expression and also behavior. Tell us something about how they affect gene expression and how digestive enzymes help. Well, enzymes themselves, uh, as far as those that work for digestion, I I think are fairly simple as um, compared to metabolic-type enzymes. They're basically there to break down the proteins, the carbohydrates and starches and triglycerides that are in our diet. And those need to be broken down so the body can use um, use the materials from that breakdown as raw material to produce the things that the body needs, which are different from um, from what you eat. You can't the the proteins and and such in in a apple or or steak are not the proteins that our body needs. So they need to be torn down, um, used as raw material to to rebuild uh, the things that the, the body needs. Now, the other thing is that the uh, taking... One thing I want to get clear is that sometimes a lot of people think that we're trying to 
replace an enzyme deficiency. And sometimes that's, that is true. Lac, uh, lactose intolerance uh, is, is usually caused by the fact that when we hit 30, um, the amount of lactase enzyme we produce uh, starts going down dramatically. Actually, it starts growing down dramatically at age six, but it, it continues to decline. The other enzymes, though, um, you know, any, anyone, any gastroenterologist will tell you that the pancre pancreas produces huge amounts of enzymes unless you have a pancreatic defect. Um, so there's, there's a huge amount of enzymes that go out there, but they only work um, once the food leaves the stomach and goes into the first part of the GI tract to duodenum, and, and that's fine. However, um, supplemental enzymes are usually most likely plant-based, which means they are acid-stable. So they work prior, they will work in the acid environment of the stomach. And this, I like to refer to it as a pre-digestive phase. And it sort of sets up um, food to be, because our foods are often overly processed and we eat a lot more food than, than we probably should, we need this additional help. Uh, and also we're breaking down proteins in, in a safe area uh, where absorption doesn't occur in the stomach. So... Um, this allows a number of things to happen, but primarily it, it ensures that what is eaten and gets put into the gut doesn't stay around in the gut. Um, for example, carbohydrates that don't get broken down become food sources for, um, for bacteria. Um, they, their population increases dramatically over a short period of time, and you get the gassiness and the bloating and um, diarrhea and, and um, all sorts of nasty effects. Also, yeast tend to want to use these as uh, food sources as well. Uh, okay, so this is why it's good to eat smaller meals. I think so. Um, you know, I like the idea. I think that's how we were supposed to, that's how we were originated, basically. Uh, we were meant to be grazers. Uh, we don't gorge ourselves five times a day, but maybe eating small meals four or five times a day rather than too large meals um, or too heavy meals, especially one in the morning and one in the evening. Um, you know, that's really not you're you're really stressing your uh, insulin glucose system as well. Um, so I think smaller amounts, being grazers kind of thing, um, is is helpful as well. Um, but again, uh, it's basically all. You know, making sure that things get processed. Um, the speed of our gut is, is variable, too, and that is often modulated by what we eat as well. Um, certain dairy products can slow down the gut, so food stays around longer. And uh, while it may get broken down, some of it may not, and it becomes uh, a problem, especially proteins. If they're not broken down, they can be a source of allergens. And, uh, and then what doesn't get absorbed... Um, again, can, can cause an increase in bacteria or become a potential allergen. Okay, so what, what you were talking about with the stomach, and were you talking about our body's own enzymes or supplemental digestive enzymes helping with the breakdown of food in the stomach? Well, there's only one major enzyme in the, in the stomach, pepsin, and it's only activated when the pH of the stomach is less than 5. Um, Pepsin is there basically to, to jumpstart the other enzymes downstream. Um, the pancreatic enzymes are pro actually produced in um, inactive form. Otherwise, they might um, start 
digesting the, the pancreas. And that sometimes occurs in the, in the disease pancreatitis. Right. But uh, pepsin is uh, it's also inactive, except when the pH becomes less than 5. A couple of amino acids drop off one end of the pepsin molecule, and it becomes active. And um, it starts some protein breakdown in the stomach, but it's basically there to, once it gets into the intestinal tract and encounters the inactive pancreatic enzymes, it chews off a couple of amino acids off the pancreatic enzymes and activates them. So it helps to jumpstart the, uh, the digestive process by activating other enzymes uh, downstream. Okay. Uh, now, you were talking about a low pH for the stomach, but that's the stomach. Usually the overall body pH we like to have uh, like 7 or above, correct? Right. Well, in the gut, yeah. Uh, the pancreas also, uh, in addition to putting out a lot of uh, enzymes, also pushes out a lot of sodium bicarbonate to neutralize the stomach acid because pancreatic enzymes cannot really work under pH 7. So we need to raise the pH in the first part of the GI tract to, so that the pancreatic enzymes can begin to work. How is this relevant? How are the things that you're talking about with the stomach and the pancreas and the pH levels relevant to kids who have autism? And if they're out of whack, how do we help them? The this, enzymes. That... Yeah, this is this is what uh, a dozen years ago that that why I got involved with this in the first place because it really drove home to me um, the intricate balance between diet and behavior. Um, there are proteins. Uh, you and I both in in gluten. Um, there's uh, peptides like gliadin, which is more in the, the causative peptide in uh, celiac disease. But there's also peptides called glutamorphin, um, which are similar. They're opiate-like peptides. They're different from gliadin. The structure is different. Uh, dairy, casein, can produce a peptide called casomorphin. These are opiate-like peptides uh, that are actually formed from normal digestion. Um, there's a couple of good papers that show that the sequential um, contact of of the of gluten and or casein to pe- one pepsin in the stomach and then the elastase, a pancreatic enzyme, later on can produce these peptides. And they, as opiates, they bind opiate receptors and they can produce opiate-like effects, somewhat subtle. Um, but I think in children with autism, the, there seems to be an exaggerated response to to these peptides, and I'm. We're not sure why. We don't. It's not entirely due to the peptide itself. It may be, maybe the opiate receptor in the gut is different, or that the signaling mechanisms downstream of the opiate receptor in the gut in these kids may be different as well. But any parent of a child with autism um, can most likely tell you stories of, of the relationships between um, their child's diet and behaviors that that are produced by these foods. Couldn't it just be that um, children with autism as a whole have a greater prevalence of uh, gut permeability, permeability of the intestinal wall, what some people call leaky gut, and so this population more so has these agents go up to the brain? 
that's possible. Leaky gut is really just a reflection of the inflammation that's going on in the gut. Um, normally, the cells lining the gut wall are very close together and tight. There's no spaces between them. In inflammation, however, those spaces become larger. So things that would normally stay within the gut can now get out of the gut and into the bloodstream. If these peptides um, from gluten and casein and soy and, and other, maybe other proteins as well uh, escape, sure, they can, they can uh, then bind to opioid receptors in the brain and elsewhere. And that may be part of the reason. Uh, a lot of parents have found that when their children are on the diet, and remove these foods that the gut improves and behavior improves. So, um, you know, it's, it stands to reason that there's, there's a problem with these, with these peptides. Now, it's interesting to note, if, if gluten and casein were not broken down, if they stayed the same, um, same protein, they wouldn't be causing these effects because they wouldn't be producing the, the peptides. But the problem is partial digestion of these proteins is producing these peptides. So the whole idea of the, of the stomach is, as a safe area, as I call it, is that within the stomach you can work on these proteins with additional enzymes. And uh, since the stomach can't absorb proteins or peptides, you have a window of opportunity. You have a one to two, maybe three hour um, opportunity to address the, the infraction or the food that the child ate. And if you can break it down sufficiently, break those proteins down to where you don't produce the peptides, then you don't, um, if the peptides are the causative agent, then you're not going to have the, you're not lighting the trigger to the bomb, so to speak. Okay, so a question that many people have had um, where there are a couple of schools of thought uh, is, see, I personally believe that therapeutic diet, uh, diets like gluten-free, casein-free, or specific carbohydrate diet are very important for individuals with an autism spectrum disorder to use. But you're telling me how digestive enzymes have been helpful even when individuals have not implemented one of these diets. And I think you're just giving some rationale now about catching stuff while it's still in the stomach. But can how do digestive enzymes do this? Do you know which kids this will or won't work for, and how can a digestive enzyme capsule, you know, take care of a, a meal at a fast food restaurant or something? Right, and, and I want to emphasize that, that I'm a big proponent of the diet. Uh, it's not something I'm trying to abolish or, or take away, but I think we need to understand how the diet works and an understanding of, of, of why... Um, avoiding foods like gluten, <clears throat> casein, and soy, why, why we're doing that. And the reason is to prevent the production of these peptides. So if we can address the peptide issue from a basic understanding of biochemistry by using the appropriate enzymes, uh, proteolytic enzymes to, to, uh, that target these peptides or the proteins. And, and basically, instead of just having one protease enzyme pepsin in the stomach by adding additional proteases, you change the profile of how a protein is broken down. So you're adding many knives and scissors or chainsaws to, to the cutting up of these, these proteins. And in that way, you don't even have the, the peptide produced. Now, the question is, 
um, how much enzyme will it take or how much time does it take. Uh, and this goes back to, to dose-response effects. Um, if peptides interact with the receptors to produce an effect, then um, from my background in signal transduction mechanisms, you require a certain amount of a, of a receptor population to be occupied by a ligand, or the, in this case, a peptide, to produce effect. It's why certain medications, you develop tolerance. They don't work unless you take increasing amounts, or why a, why a, a person who needs morphine um, can't get that high unless they keep, keep increasing the dose. Uh, you have to occupy more receptors to get that dose. So, and again, this can be the difference. Uh, one person may, uh, one child may show an effect, a behavioral response, when very few opiate receptors are occupied by glutamorphin or casomorphin. Another child may have to have a lot more receptors to be occupied. So, again, this is why we see such a, a diverse reaction um, to, to, um, uh, to, to the diet as well as to the enzymes. It's basically how much, uh, how much of the peptide are you reducing, how much load. And uh, redu changing that equilibrium in the, in the body between how much peptide there once was to a new level, either by reducing it through diet or the use of enzymes. Um, and again, it's to me... It's a, it's a matter of choice. I, we've, again, I'm kind of neutral on the diet. Is I just say um, let's give parents more tools and let them, let them decide and giving them as much information as, as possible to make a good decision for their child. I'm going to have a follow-up question on this when we come back from break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Ch Channel with Dr. Devin Houston. Thank you to our sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for new reflections featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health, and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for new reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Devin Houston of Houston Enzymes. That website is www.houston-enzymes.com. And before the break, Dr. Houston, you were talking about how um, it would be an individualized situation, which children might be able to handle, you know, which substances and, and how we can preclude uh, peptides that tax their system from being uh, formed, kind of head them off at the past. Uh, and you were giving a time window of, something like two to three hours, which was really encouraging. Like if the child has a dietary infraction over at grandma's on Thanksgiving, then you have two to three hours to get an enzyme into them. But mm, let me just bring up an example. There was a child uh, who used to be able to tolerate aged goat cheddar cheese that's legal on the specific carbohydrate diet, and they were fine with it. And then uh, they took a they took a break from that in their diet, and then when they integrated it back into their diet, as soon as that aged goat cheddar cheese, which I think is supposed to have been processed by its own natural enzymes, it being aged and everything, as soon as that went into their mouth and then maybe just a few seconds to get a little bit down the throat, they had a pretty significant behavioral reaction to it, either pain or behavior or what have you is, does that ha- what what would cause that, or does that have anything to do with? I think Derek McFabe, researcher Derek McFabe, said there's receptors in the throat, and he talks a lot about propionic acid um, that also has to do with clostridia. Can you make any sense of this? Actually, um, I think it's something different. I think it's it's something called eosinophilic esophagitis, ah. which is basically um, characterized by an increased number of white cells in the lining of the throat. I've I've seen this several times. Uh, in my customer base, uh, it just as you as you described, um, and it's usually diagnosed by because the reaction is so quick, um, and it's uh, we've even seen some children um, react to to certain enzymes in this way because enzymes are proteins. They could are if someone is a, has a history of food allergies, there's a potential that, it, that even an enzyme can be an, an allergen. You mean a supplemental digestive enzyme? Sometimes, yes. In, okay. some, in some cases, all enzymes are proteins. So any protein is, can be a potential um, allergen. So they, again, it just depends on what population. It's, it's no greater risk than any other food protein, but it's, it's still out there. But it, if when swallowing it and, and the particular protein or food comes in contact with the 
with the mucosa of the, the esophagus and there's a reaction, then, yeah, those, the receptors on those white cells get activated immediately and you get, a, you get a, uh, either a behavior response, usually pain or swelling or um, that type of thing. It, it sometimes looks like an anaphylactic-type reaction, but it's not really. It is an antigen-mediated immune response, um, but it, it can have a sudden onset, even in adults who uh, may have tolerated a food for their entire life, and then all of a sudden, you know, out of the blue, they're, they, they react. So it's, I don't quite understand it yet. Um, it's just one of those IgE-mediated uh, type allergies. And the interesting thing is sometimes it doesn't show up on a food allergy test, so, it, and it's, which is very puzzling for the allergist. Um, the patient is obviously reacting, but when you do the standard um, uh, allergy tests, it doesn't show up. So in this case, um, you know, an elimination, an elimination type diet is is going to be um, the the way to go. You just have to exclude that that particular food. Well, if you have eosinophilic esophagitis, that's a different animal than uh, having a food allergy, right? All right, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. If you have eosinophilic esophagitis, that is something that is not. Qu- the same as just having a food allergy. No, no, that's this is this is basically an inflammation of the esophagus um, caused by a, the migration of of millions of white blood cells to to just underneath the underlying skin. Um, so I think it can be diagnosed by by scoping the throat, right. um, that type of thing. So, uh, but yeah, it's different from food intolerance, or which usually happens. Later on, you know, when once the food gets into the GI tract and, and right. starts reacting. So, why is the cheese slithering down the throat something that would cause that immediate reaction? Well, it depends, you know, what's in the cheese. Um, there are different proteins, um, not only casein, but or well, goat cheese may have a very low level of casein, but there are other proteins as well. If it's a fer- fermented food, perhaps the particular bacteria or microbe used to ferment the food is producing something. We can be, we can be sensitized to even good things. So uh, that's, that's the problem. I'm just trying to figure out why, why the, is it, you know, esophagitis yeah, and eosinophilic esophagitis in particular would speed up this reaction. It's more, it's more akin to an autoimmune type, type reaction. Okay. So, uh, and then the why becomes you know, problematic. It, you can start looking for the needle in the haystack. You know, it could be one of a number of number of reasons. It sounds like shoring up the whole the body's overall immune system uh, would be helpful to the situation. Yeah, um, and I, I think that's where uh, going back to the probiotic bacteria in the gut. Um, I think that's helpful. There's there. There's another class of proteins called toll-like receptors. We call them TLRs um, that play a role in the immune system. And these are receptors that recognize um, compounds produced by uh, by bacteria. Um, It's it's usually when you have a microbial type infection, um, the 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 microbe produces a, a substance that binds to these receptors and that alerts the immune system that we have a problem. So um, the fact is that these 
toll-like receptors can actually be, um, depending on which ones and, and how they're activated, they can cause the activation of certain genes necessary for initiating a certain adaptive immune response. So again, we're going back to, to what's going on on the, on the gene level, on genome level. And again, we're going back to what, what kind of bacteria you have in your gut, good or bad, um, how they're signaling to the immune system. Um, so we've opened up a, a whole other can of worms um, in, with, with bringing that into I don't think we want to go into that because that could be a whole other show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, let's talk some more about digestive enzymes. So it sounds uh, like digestive enzymes can help with proper absorption and assimilation of nutrients and help ward off gut bugs by digesting things that otherwise would sit there and ferment. Um, how about um, things like the food allergies and how that would help the immune system and how that would help the nervous system and the brain. Okay. Um, well, it's amazing to me, again, um, some people try to make more out of enzymes than, than, than I would. Enzymes simply, the dietary enzyme supplements simply break down food, but that is a big, has big consequences, whether you break them down or, or, or not break them down. The point is, uh, I'll go back to my, my research days um, at St. Louis University. We often wanted to make antibodies to certain small peptides. If a peptide is very small, say three or four amino acids in length, it's very, very difficult to inject that into a rabbit and, and get an antibody to it. So what we do is we hook that peptide to a large protein like albumin and then inject that into a rabbit and collect the blood. And what you get is you get a whole, a whole gamish of antibodies produced and, and you can select out the antibody um, that's specific to that peptide. So um, in the same way, uh, the gut kind of senses... Um, Proteins that are there, peptides are there, and the larger the, the larger the peptide, the larger the protein, the more likely it is to uh, be an allergen, or that it can be it has a potential to to create an antibody. So, by having adequate amount of proteolytic enzymes to keep the proteins broken down into very very small peptides, or even ideally, we want to get them down to pure amino acids, and in that way you're below the threshold of the radar, the immune system radar in the gut, and um, you're keeping the likelihood of producing a food allergy to a minimum by, by making sure that those peptides stay small, that they're broken down to, to a size that, that won't activate the immune system. So that's one big, one big thing. Um, okay, and can we tra keep going further with this after the break? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, very good. Thank you. We will be right back with Dr. Devin Houston here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. When we come back from break, thank you to our sponsors, Oxy Health and Superberries. We'll be right back. You're 
listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On mind, brain, and body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Devin Houston, who's continuing his thought from before the break. Yeah, we were talking about making sure that um, proteins, which are the most likely source of allergens, um, are broken down as to, to the smallest fragment possible, ideally all the way to amino acids. So that way we're not triggering or activating the immune system in the gut and, and sounding the alarm to, for the body to make an antibody to that particular peptide, which could cause future problems. Um, in the same way, uh, not to just to pick on proteins, but carbohydrates, large carbohydrates, um, and even triglycerides need to be broken down, and, um, or else they can cause their own problems. So things, things aren't meant to stay whole in the gut. They are meant to be processed, chopped up, and, and absorbed or excreted. Okay, very good. And you had some interesting observations during the break as well. Yeah, we, we started talking about um, the short-chain fatty acids that are found in certain foods, and those are produced from the triglyceride fats. And the goat cheese you mentioned, that would be a, 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 a good source of, of triglycerides. And we think of triglycerides, we think of the bad things, and cholesterol and such, but um, the breakdown of triglycerides, uh, produces short-chain fatty acids like propionic acid or butyric acid or, or sodium butyrate. And those can have powerful effects on, um, on one. They can modify the, the type of microbes in the gut. And they can help. They actually have an a, a anti-proliferative effect on bad bacteria. They can also um, increase the response of the cells in the gut. They can keep them healthy. And um, <clears throat> there's also maybe in some um, in vitro cell studies, we've seen that butyrate is implicated in the downregulation of, of certain bacteria, both by either direct effect on, on the gene expression uh, or on the actual host cell to produce uh, compounds like interleukins and cytokines that can affect um, uh, bacteria in the gut as well. So, again, it's just so important. We, and I get to talking about proteins because 
in their breakdown because they can produce the most obvious type of um, behavioral effects. But we can't rule out the other, other thing, carbohydrates, starches especially. Uh, Dr. Tim Bowie, his research on starch breakdown and the enzymes utilized there demonstrates that it's very, very important in kids with autism that we don't have starch hanging around in the gut. It needs to be broken down. Absolutely. So this is all really easy for you to say, but what parents and listeners really want to know is has the use of digestive enzymes helped some kids recover? Well, the the important thing is, um, to me, the enzymes are just part of of nutrition, um, healthful lifestyle, and it goes back to the old saying that food is medicine, and the proper processing of, of food uh, can have tremendous results, not just, not just in children with autism, but in, in anybody as well. So uh, the, the nice thing is that it doesn't hurt to try enzymes. They have a, they're extremely safe. They have, um, you, know, you don't have to worry about taking too much. There's no LD50 for any enzyme. Um, so it's something that it would be, if they're going to work, if they're going to be something that you find beneficial, you should know it in a matter of a couple or two, three days. So it's something you can try. If it doesn't make you feel better or work out, you know, you can spend your money elsewhere, but uh, it might be worth trying. Well, I know years ago I uh, put out an article uh, that featured Mandy Rodwell's child, and I know she, that uh, her child was really helped by digestive enzymes, and they happen to be uh, from Houston Enzymes. And again, that website is www.houston-enzymes.com. That was um, in a, uh, a different publication that I used to be with many years ago, but, and uh, just to let listeners know that Dr. Houston does have an article about uh, personalized medicine coming up in the next issue of Autism Science Digest, which you can find at www.autism1.org. Dr. Houston, I want to thank you for being with us again today. A pleasure as always, Terry. And you are presenting on Friday, May 25th at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2012 Conference in Chicagoland. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So listeners can catch up with you there. To our listeners, you can register for the Autism One Generation Rescue 2012 Conference at www.autism1.org. The registration fee has been waived again. There's simply a $25 uh, materials and processing fee. That's for five information-packed days, uh, over 130 speakers. So we hope to see you there. Betsy's back as guest host next week, talking to Dr. John Hicks about natural measures you and your family can take to get through cold and flu season. Thank you to this program's sponsors, Oxy Health and Superberries, and to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.